Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something, seeking community and resources to support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. My name is Krista Williams, and I am so grateful that you're here. I know that there's a lot of other podcasts and audio choices that you have, and it means a lot that you chose Almost 30 today. My best friend, Lindsay, and I, my co-host, who is now on maternity leave, started this podcast around seven years ago when we were going through a time in our lives that felt crazy and chaotic, and we felt super lost. But we wanted to start the show to explore consciousness, to explore our evolution, to talk about all the things that we felt like no one else was talking about. We wanted to use it as a place and space to feel less alone. So for the past seven years, we've been doing that with some of the best and brightest minds in the game. We've had the pleasure and privilege to have some of the most incredible people on the podcast, and one of them is back today. That is Zach Bush, MD, who has now been on the podcast over four times is one of our community's favorite guests, and is a friend of us and the show. Dr. Zach Bush is Jesus incarnated, in my perspective. He is true Christ consciousness, and I know he would probably hate to hear me say that because he's that humble. He is someone that is bringing through messages of truth, of peace, of humanity, and of love. And in this episode, I got to sit down with him, We got to have a really relaxed, laid-back, low-key conversation that felt like two humans. So it might be different than the other episodes you've heard of Zach and I, or Zach and Lindsay and I, where we talked a lot about the gut microbiome, we talked a lot about the pharmaceutical industry, we talked a lot about consciousness. And in this one, it's much more laid-back and low-key. We got to explore so many different things that I've never been able to talk to Zach about. And I felt like it was such a juicy conversation among friends. There was even one moment where we were talking about octopuses and how we think they're aliens. And then another moment where Zach is talking to this massive tree that's outside of our studio. It was truly the experience of a lifetime. And I feel so grateful because the podcasts that I've been resonating with recently have been ones that feel more in flow, that feel more natural, that feel more at ease, and that feel less like we have to do this life thing right. And that feel less like we have to have the goal of growth in every second. And you are going to really love this one. I am so grateful that he was able to come and do it. And Zach Bush, MD, is someone who applies the rigor of science, the strength of humanity, and the intelligence of nature with the goal to transform our health and our world. Zach Bush, MD, is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. He has many projects like Farmer's Footprint, ION, The Journey to Intrinsic Health. He is an incredible being and someone that we highly love and highly appreciate. You can listen to the other episodes we've done with Zach Bush once you finish with this one by searching Zach Bush Almost 30 or going to the episodes in the show notes. Thank you to Zach Bush and his team. 
Also letting you know that one of his projects and one of his babies is Ion. It's Intelligence of Nature. It is an incredible gut support supplement. They have a skin support supplement. They have sinus support. But it basically works with the microbiome to support you in your healthcare journey. It gives you the tools you need to fortify your defenses and improve your microbiome diversity. So you can go to intelligenceofnature.com and use code ALMOST30 to get a discount on ION. Okay, let's dig into this episode with no further ado. I hope you enjoy it. I am so grateful that you listened ALMOST30. Like I said, I'm so grateful you're a part of my life and my world. I'm so grateful that I found my purpose and dharma with ALMOST30 and being a podcast host. Enjoy this episode with Zach Bush. If you'd like to leave a review or send this to a friend, I highly suggest it. We will see you on the other side. I am juggling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, If you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. (laughs) Shervine has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products uh, that are clean, plant-based, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, So let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, So I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus, and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. It's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste amazing unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time. Right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code ALMOST30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code ALMOST30 for 20% off site-wide. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oh. Therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to, but I have been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy. 
so crazy, but it has changed my life and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better, made my career better. I am a better mom. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter and sister. Y'all, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do, this is it. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you get matched and you're like, eh, not quite a fit, they make it easy and it's free to change. But I've had a lot of friends try BetterHelp and love it. So I really, really encourage you to start therapy. It's been the best decision I've ever made for myself. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash almost 30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30. I'm so glad you're here. Third time's a charm. They just Oh my God. Everywhere I go, it's all about ZB. <laughs> I was in Italy and someone came up to me on the street and they were like, the Zach Bush episode. <laughs> I'm like, we should just replay every Zach Bush episode for all of our podcasasts and we'd be like massive and successful and amazing. Reduce your workload. <laughs> Dude, honestly, I'll just cut like a hundred clips of each thing and just make it a ZB moment. I'm just so grateful that you're here, especially just in this moment in time and all the work that you've done and really grateful to talk about some um, really fun and exciting, beautiful things, creativity anything related to nature and also some of the heartbreak and some of the things that are going on right now before we were talking about fertility. And I'd love to kind of start there because so many women in our community are experiencing fertility, are having friends, family that are experiencing infertility issues or fertility issues. And I think it's going to be something that's going to continue to increase over time. I know you said you have your own experience and story with it. What are you noticing in the collective as it relates to fertility and infertility? Yeah, it's been a really rapid change. My background in endocrinology and metabolism had me in the space of fertility medicine very early in my trajectory. And so by the late 1990s, I mean, even before that, in the early 1990s, my first exposure to medicine was in birthing clinics in, in the Philippines with midwives. And so I was seeing really proficient fertility in some of the most abject poverty of the world. And yeah. nobody knew about infertility. Nobody knew about IVF. It was, I didn't know about IVF. There was just no mention of it because it wasn't a thing at that time because people were fertile at a pretty standard rate. But over the course of the 1990s, we saw this really fast acceleration of metabolic disorder. And we can map that, mm -hmm. you know, back to the microbiome and herbicides, pesticides, plastics, all kinds of things. But the fact is that me metabolic collapse, which means a decrease in energy production at the cellular level, leads to very predictable changes in our fertility. And so that become, became pretty evident by the late 1990s that there was a shift beginning to happen. And by the early 2000s, the you know, first few, few years of this millennium, we were starting to recognize that one in four women in the United States had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the most common form of infertility in the West. And that polycystic ovarian syndrome is basically a variant of diabetes. It's insulin resistance at the ovary. And you change your hormonal patterns based on that high insulin level. And the interesting thing is this was happening to women across all socioeconomic levels, all standards of living. 
in the West yeah. and not so much in the developing world. So you go to Africa and polycystic ovarian syndrome was not seen and still today is very rare, but it's starting to accelerate there as they adopt Western diet and farming practices and all the rest. So that metabolic class, that drop in energy level leading to a difficulty of getting energy into the cell, and that leads to a backup of glucose and fatty acids into the liver and we get fatty liver. And so fatty liver, we used to think, well, that just happens with obesity or maybe from people who are predisposed to diabetes. Turns out that in that time frame of the 1990s, we were starting to be exposed to such high levels of herbicides, uh, namely Roundup in our diet because of all this Roundup resistant or Roundup ready crops that we were growing by the 1996 kind of time period that we were starting to poison our bodies really deeply with a chemical that was killing the mitochondria inside of our cells. And the mitochondria are the power plant that takes glucose and fatty acids back into energy for the human cell. So as we killed those mitochondria, which are just small bacteria, with the antibiotics of the herbicides, we started to lose the ability to take calories from your food into the light energy inside the cell. And so you basically had a backup of energy in the body, which led to fatty liver. Up until that time for 100 years of tracking causes of fatty liver, alcohol and obesity were like the two pieces of the puzzle and hepatitis C was kind of in the mix as well. So these kind of chronic inflammation states of toxicity, alcohol poisoning, chronic viral infection, all these things. As we started to see the breakdown of metabolism, we now recognize glyphosate poisoning by 2006 or so as the number one cause of fatty liver. And Is so, that your enemy, glyphosate? It's both the enemy and the gift. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Course. It's so interesting because if not for glyphosate, would we ever have found out who we are? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to lose your self-identity to go find the cause of that and then realize, wow, that's really beautiful. I know who I am now. You know, in our journey of glyphosate and our understanding, our realization of the chronic disease epidemics that came out of the herbicide era of human behavior, we discovered that we weren't alone inside the cells. We, we always thought that a healthy human body was a sterile human body. And in our overuse of antibiotics and our farming practices, we suddenly revealed in the late 1990s chronic disease epidemic that we could have never seen coming. These chemicals don't actually hurt the human cells. Yeah, they kill lots of bacteria. But we hadn't put together in our heads, oh, the bacteria inside of our cells that we call mitochondria are actually what we live off of. And we hadn't put the whole codependent independent and interdependent model of life together yet. And so glyphosate in some ways has become a real gift in that it's revealed the truth about what it means to be human, which is really to be an ecosystem. And we are not an isolated species as we might have anticipated and believed for hundreds of years before that. So oftentimes the wound is what reveals the truth. You know? And I think we organize life in relationships this way too. We can say that the relationship failed or we had a bad relationship or I often hear the word I had a toxic relationship. Well, I can kind of relate to that. I had relationships in my life that went through periods of time that felt really damaging to my cellular system because of the emotional mm -hmm. friction or trauma or whatever is caused. But you picked that relationship and then you chose to maybe leave that relationship or whatever it was, but you picked that thing. And in the same way, I think mysteriously, humans picked our relationship to glyphosate. We picked a toxic relationship 
with our food system so that we would have the journey into self, which every relationship is perfectly designed to take us closer to self. So, so yes, toxic relationship with our food system. Yes, toxic relationship to soil systems. But did we need the toxic relationship ultimately to reveal who we are and to give us a sense of, wow, I need healthy boundaries, which is, of course, what we, that's how we kind of discovered glyphosate stories. We had found that these carbon extracts from fossil soils that we were putting into dietary supplements over the last decade were actually accelerating the rate of boundary creation at the gut level, at the immune system level, at the vascular level, at your blood brain level, at your kidney level. So the fact that the microbes are making the compounds that help you have healthy boundaries was a big scientific breakthrough that also is a big socio, you know, philosophical breakthrough. Earth in its biodiversity allows for humans to have strong boundaries. And so when we think about relationships and we we're talking about fertility there, the toxicity of both the environment and the relationship are due to a lack of biodiversity. And so what have we learned in the journey? Every relationship needs to embrace biodiversity at its core. What's your new thought today? What it, let's get somebody else to come think with us tonight. Let's make sure we set an extra chair at the table tonight to have somebody over for dinner because it's in the monotony of relationship and the lack of diversity of experience, thought, ideas, we start to decay. We start to lose those boundaries. We start to, into deep codependence and inflammation towards one another, whether we be a bacteria in the immune system or one another in a relationship. So all of that is kind of the backstory to your first question, which is why infertility? Infertility was the result of this destruction of biodiversity, leading to these fundamental breakdowns in the relationship to the outside world, inside world. And with that, we became inflamed. We became inflammatory and lacking energy. And I think we can all kind of relate to those two descriptions. Mm -hmm. At the end of a week, we're out of energy and we feel short of temper, short of coping mechanisms, and, and we are exhausted. Yeah. And in the, the conversation, and thanks for entertaining the glyphosate um, point within that conversation around fertility, but within the fertility conversation, how much of it is on the, the woman if we were, we're not placing blame, but I just am always curious because in the conversation it always feels like it's focused around the woman. Mm -hmm. Like what can women do for fertility? How can they support themselves? Women are less fertile than ever, but how much of it is men's relationship and men's sperm count or men's, how much of it is also on the men? Yeah, it's equal in both sexes. Uh, one in three males are now infertile by sperm count. One in three women are infertile by a number of different variety of causes, including polycystic ovarian syndrome. So one in three humans is now infertile in the West. The numbers are starting to look better in Africa and things like that because as we improve nutrition over there, we we actually seeing their sperm levels go up over the last couple of decades. That said, their sperm counts started quite low because there was so much starvation and, and breakdown of systems there. But those, as they've repaired, have seemingly improved. So there's been kind of a crossing. Africa used to have low sperm counts now. They're actually starting to improve past the West. And in some ways, I think that by the end of the decade, if Africa makes some smart decisions about exiting the Western practices of chemical agriculture, we could see Africa at the last place in the world where healthy babies are being born. You know, South America has long bought into 
the U.S. kind of trade system of chemical agriculture, and so Brazil uses more glyphosate and chemicals in their agriculture than the U.S. does by a long shot. They're huge on factory farming, too. Yeah, and Argentina and the whole thing. Like, it's really, all all of South America has, has transitioned to this kind of big ag chemical farming model as the technological advancement of food systems, even countries that we think of very enlightened of like Costa Rica and Pura Vida and all this, like Costa Rica uses more per acre than really any country in the hemisphere. And for that, they're losing more topsoil than the U.S. is at this point per year. They lose like 20 tons of topsoil, between 13 and 20 tons of topsoil per acre. U.S. is losing about two to four tons per acre due to this loss of biodiversity, loss of soil structure and all that. So the West, Western Hemisphere, if you will, there is just long, long down the path of destruction of biodiversity. Africa and parts of, you know, Russia, Eastern Europe, Ukraine being a good example, still pretty well preserved. The Ukraine war has really put a deep dent in healthy grains and other foods to Europe because they had stopped importing from the West. They had stopped importing from Canada and North America for the reasons of the toxicity of the food we were sending them. So no grains out of the U.S., et cetera, Canada. And they were bringing that mostly out of Ukraine and some out of Russia. And then the war broke out. And you'll recall that Germany was the very last country of Europe to like acknowledge the war there because they knew they were going to go into a crisis as soon as that really became a reality with their food system. So food prices have exploded in Europe and everything else as they weren't actually growing their own food. They were, again, outsourcing that to cheaper labor. Now they're outsourcing to Africa, uh, which is putting pressure on a food system that's already failing to feed Africans. And it's shocking to see how much food is being shipped, citrus especially, your oranges and limes and lemons, mangoes, the whole thing are all being shipped up to Europe out of as far south as South Africa. And so you've got these huge long supply chains, 3,000, 5,000 miles long, and the people are dying in these spaces from a lack of food. And so we have this very ironic crisis of loss of identity in some mm-hmm. ways across all sectors from macro to micro in our loss of diversity and our dependence on chemical systems we've begun to really diminish the whole story of life on earth and so when we talk about when three females with infertility that's just an expression of the lack of fertility of the soil itself earth itself and so in this brilliant and beautiful way biology has actually created one organism and it's called earth and that one organism has expressed life in so many beautiful millions of variants and it's been progressing in its intelligence and its diversity and its capacity for adaptation over four billion years through five extinctions like it's this this machine just keeps going and every time there's a quote-unquote bad event an extinction things simply get more beautiful more intelligent more vibrant than it had ever been before and so it's very exciting to think that okay we are the existential threat on the earth right now but for the stress that we've put on the earth there's going to be equal and opposite in fact rebound effect that will far exceed the beauty that we see right now so in perhaps even a couple hundred years but certainly in millions of years due to the stress we've put on the environment at large there's going to be new species of flowers trees 
bushes, animals, and there's going to be a new form of intelligence on the planet. And whether that's in human form or not is kind of juries out. We're not sure yet. Part of me gets kind of excited about imagining like we went from reptiles to to birds. We went from reptiles to humans with the last extinction. What does it look like for this big extinction? What do we jump to from human to what? Mm-hmm. You know, and humans basically were a technological advancement at the genetic code and therefore at the anatomical level from primates. But it could have easily as much happened to octopi. Mm-hmm extremely intelligent neurologic Aliens. system, a few more inserts of, of genetic sequences from viruses due to the stress of extinction, and the next iteration of the smartest creatures on the earth that could be light years ahead of where we are now could be some descendant of an octopus. <laughs> so I'm down. It's like, yeah, it would octopus be beautiful. Octopus are so cool. They're so cool. Literally, my octopus teacher was amazing. Yeah, I was curious about it, and I kind of you kind of answered it, but it seems like when we talk about an extinction event that it doesn't seem like something that scares you it kind of seems like a new opportunity or a new like how do you I guess relate to that and how do you find yourself in a position where you can talk about that sort of matter of fact and with like a lens of hope I actually got that last you know couple sentences there around the possibility of the octopi actually comes from Craig Foster I was just swimming with him with uh, off the coast of South Africa and uh, so we spent a day together again, swimming in the kelp forest together, and we were pondering that this exact thing. Uh, we, it's such cold water, it's unbelievable. And wow. so you're out there in your swimming trunks and uh, 13 degree water out there, and you swim for 45 minutes, and your core body temperature's so low. And in that high dopamine state, you realize that it's only through the lens of the human perception that we're the most important thing oh. that extinction looks like a really bad thing. And when you start to go under the water and you experience this whole other universe that terrestrial eyes just can't comprehend, the color schemes don't make any sense. So you got these fluorescent oranges and purples and phosphorescent things and like just does not compute to, to a land-based creature. You realize that nature has such exquisite design, such exquisite capacity for creativity, such a drive towards beauty that there's absolutely nothing to worry about on the end. And you, you've seen it happen where human behavior stops and one thing and nature comes roaring back. And so nature will come roaring in as soon as humans let our knee off the throat of biology here. And when we do release that and, and we stop the othering and not only racism towards one another, the racism of other races, the other species, whether they be terrestrial, extraterrestrial under the ocean, extraterrestrial above the you know, sky, what, wherever life is coming from that's not in our little narrow plane is going to be beautiful, is going to be intelligent no matter what, because life is iterative. Life always gets more intelligent, more biodiverse over time. And so that's how I think I find the peace of like, look for the beauty and realize that the beauty is not of humans and is not dependent on humans. And in the end, aren't we part of that beauty? And aren't we the expression of the stress of the last extinction? Aren't we the beautiful result of stress and death and regeneration that would come out of it? And so when you start to see life as an organic process of composting, the old gives birth to the new. 
and it does it in such an exuberant fashion that it's kind of out of control. One oak tree falls in the forest. You do DNA sequencing on that oak. Every single cell in there has the DNA of oak tree, the whole trunk. But within one year, you go sequence that oak trunk again, and there's 100,000 species. And so for one species to be able to transform into 100,000 species with the energy of its memory of life is pretty eloquent and really releases the fear. And if you've had the opportunity, which fewer and fewer people, unfortunately, are having the opportunity of being with somebody in the dying process, but if you have been gifted with the opportunity to be at the bedside with somebody who's in transition, I hope that you've gotten to realize just how magnificent the other side might be because you get to glimpse it oftentimes at that bedside and somebody starts to come back from the other side with information of how beautiful it is or who they're talking to and you realize, wait, they're talking to Aunt Thelma. She hasn't been here for 50 years. Like, how are they sitting there having a conversation with her? What does that mean about our perception of reality? You know, And so we live in this veil and we start to interpret and make decisions and, and pretend or perhaps sincerely believe that everything we see is the reality of the, the universe, when in fact we're just seeing this little infinitesimally small slice of it. And so I get excited. I get excited that there's 2.5 trillion galaxies. That's a new discovery. Then we're off by a couple logarithms when we had Hubble, and now we've got the James Webb Telescope that's giving us a much deeper look into the cosmos, and we had 100x our estimates of, of these things. So... It's really exciting to me. I'm like life is so indelible. It's so unstoppable. Mm-hmm. It's so creative, mm-hmm. and it's just the juiciness of the universe, you know. And it's truly irrepressible. And so, anytime you knock it down, it's going to pop up somewhere else, more smart, more beautiful, more exuberant to be itself. And uh, I hope we get to be a part of that rebirth. Uh, and uh, I think that we can be a part of the next thing. And, and there's going to be an end of our current belief systems, our current philosophies, our current biology. But doesn't mean we can't transmute and doesn't mean we can't get more complex in our genetic code, in our biologic sequences that come out of that genetic code. We can become a, a different version of human. And for that, we might find out in a couple hundred years or a couple million years that the biggest gift to humanity was this moment that we chose to go through the, the valley of death here so that we could come out a new new set of beings with a new capacity for resilience, creativity, design, exploration, adventure, and ultimate compassion. And as we reach past empathy and become compassionate, uh, I think we're going to be a different species. And trying instead of trying to go on each other's emotional journeys, recognize the emotional journey. Don't try to take it on as your own. Recognize that emotional journey. Acknowledge it. Give grace to that person for what they're going through. And then together, move forward with without that vibration, having processed through that vibration together. And then we can move through traumas without carrying that into our children. We can move past the victim-perpetrator model that we persist and really become a new expression of, of grace, perhaps. Grace is my gene. When we're thinking about something you just explained, just to get tactical, related to empathy and compassion, there's so many women that are listening that are so empathetic and deep feelers. 
and oftentimes are taking on the other. So how exactly are you in your process with that? Because you are so hard, like you are so kind and with people and it it feels like you're feeling people in your tenderness, but you're not taking it on. So what is your practice for being with people enough so they know that you're feeling them in a way where they feel seen, heard, and healed, but you're not taking on and processing their grief or their trauma? Well, first of all, I would say I'm not very good at all this, but it is exciting for the possibility that we get better at it, right? I'm as easily triggered as anybody else. And for me, it's, it's a bit of a personality trait in there. My human design <laughs> chart demonstrates that I actually have a completely empty spleen part of the, the What is your human? I'm a 1-3 sacral pattern within a generator. Okay. And so, but in that pattern, that current matrix of the body, having no activation within my spleen does make me sensitive to other people's feelings. But not having my own generative engine for those feelings, I can often misinterpret those feelings. And so I can then have to project my own belief systems on those feelings to try to make sense of them because I can't figure out what their journey was like to experience whatever they're expressing. But I feel for it and I have a heart for it. And so I can then create a whole narrative around that that's unreal. And so that can be a, a common pattern, I think, in this empathy pattern, whereas I can feel other people's emotions, therefore I should align with that vibration. And in some ways, it's just a, a bit of a selfish process, right? Instead of just acknowledging, my God, you had this huge trauma, and I can see the pain you're in. Instead, I'm going to come along and I'm going to try to match that vibration so that I can have the experience of pain, so that I can be the victim, so that people can see how, you know, giving I am, serving I am, all that. And it becomes about you in this kind of insidious way. Whereas if you can stay in your own truth, your own vibration, your own experience of the reality outside of what this person is experiencing, then they're actually going to see themselves better. In the empathic state that we're often trained into, they get to see you join them in the pain, but they're just watching you in pain then. And they're not actually feeling seen in this strange way that they feel maybe commiserated with but not seen. And then for that, they're going to keep repeating that injury so they have that feeling in hopes that somebody will actually see them. And so I think when we enter into community in this empathy equals I will match your vibration, we just set each other up for this deep loneliness within ourselves of like, uh, and so we keep repeating the patterns hoping that the loneliness goes away compassion much different and i think that this is maybe some of the deep learnings that we get out of the Ching or the Tao Te Ching or the christian bible or the ancient hebrew kabbalah like they all kind of teach the same thing which is your true your true expression of self should be unmoved by others true expression of self and in being witness to somebody without becoming trying to become somebody's journey, the beauty that they can see in themselves is really spectacular. And I've struggled with this through my life because if I saw somebody hurting, especially somebody I loved hurting, I wanted to fix that thing. So I'd rush in and be like, all right, don't feel that. Don't, don't feel that. I got it. We, we'll do this or we'll go do that. And 
it's distraction and it's like, we'll fix it or we'll do this. And that's a really unpleasant thing to receive as a partner. And what you do with your bodies when you do that, it's like, no, you know, the stuffing. Like we're like, no, no. Mm-hmm. And then we push and we stuff and we try and stop. And a lot of that's that wounded masculine, you know, the trying to fix and trying to, to not allow to feel. Was there a point in time when you started to allow yourself to feel and you really recognized that you were in that process of not really allowing people to be in their process but trying to fix? I mean, it's been shown to me over and over again, and I'm a slow learner. So, (laughs) yeah, I I think that I remember kind of sensing into that probably by my late 20s, something like that. Having kids was an important part of that (laughs) realization. Kids are an interesting thing because if it, it, it is that one moment where it's like, I really can't go on that journey with that person you know they are truly on their own journey and I think it took me a couple of years of parenting before I really had that experience with my first kid I was like oh see they're like I'm a great parent like a great son and he's so easy and blah 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 and all this and clearly he's in some amalgamation of mom and I and we're so amazing because we created this thing and we're good parents because we love this thing and all this and then your second comes along and they're so radically different than your first <laughs> that you're like oh we actually have nothing to do with this situation. <laughs> yeah. They this came is actually this, nature, like, yeah, this not is, nurture. This is a being. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a being over here, <laughs> and together we are us. You know, it's like just so amazing to see the variety that can come through, you know, seemingly on your identical genetics from one child to the next, and yet vastly different That's beings. That's like how can you not believe in souls coming in? When you see children, you're like, these, how is, like me and my sister even, you're like, how, we grew up in the same environment. Yeah. And we're so different. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all this nature and nurture conversation is always like, well, you know, same food, same everything. And identical twins are interesting in that. You know, it's like, here's identical genes given the same food every day. And yet they drift apart and they become different people and they have different personalities and they have different passions and they have different things and that you know, makes them unique to one another over time. And so, yeah, you're right. There's a, an original imprint outside of the genetics that makes us who we are. And that soul imprint or that soul pattern, which is an energetic thing, right? What is a soul? I guess, you know, I used to have a pretty vague spiritual sense of like, well, that's maybe the thing that comes from God. The longer I've been in biology, especially when you're in a cell biology lab and you watch cells behave under a microscope again and again, it's really clear that they are seeing a blueprint that's not physical. And so you can literally watch cells line up and behave as if they're following a roadmap. And they're cells. They have no brain. They have no sense of intent of being me. And yet they will behave in this extraordinarily intelligent system. And bizarrely, it's non-local. And so if I draw your blood right now, I could draw two tubes blood and drive it 45 minutes across Santa Monica and then call up your colleague here and say, okay, give her the aspirin now. And she gives you an aspirin and immediately those tubes of blood will look like they just got aspirin. All the platelets will change shape and everything else. And so those cells know who you are still and know they're part of you and are following your template. And whatever's happening to you is happening to all of you. And that gets pretty trippy when we think about what we're doing through medicine right now with all these living transplants. That's what I was just thinking. Like, so transplant an organ, something happens to you, it's going to change in that person too. And so the kidney you just gave your cousin 
is going to respond to you probably more than it's going to respond to your cousin's environment. Uh, certainly cousin's environment could damage the kidney. But at no point is that kidney going to take on the identity of your cousin no matter what. And so that's pretty damn intriguing to me of like, whoa, what is a soul? Okay, it is an energy field that allows one cell to start to divide into 70 trillion cells. And then those 70 trillion cells somehow know how to self-differentiate into dozens of different organ systems that travel through hundreds of different systems of communication to become a single human body that works in this symphony. And that all self-organized in your mother's womb. <laughs> so, and it happens again and again. And there's 10 toes and there's 10 fingers and these babies come out. They might be starving. They might be, mom might have been, been you know, a heroin addict, still 10 toes, 10 fingers, and the kid comes out. And so it's such a miraculously powerful signal sitting there in the vacuum space, the energy field that allows us to self-organize again and again. And then we injure ourselves and somehow our body still tunes in. When I cut myself deeply, my skin grows right back to where it was before. And so even though it was a gaping wound with a completely different architecture and geography to it you know, a few days ago, it will return to the original geography again. There might be a little bit of sense of scar tissue there, but it's at the same level of skin. It's there. It's like, how did my arm know to grow back to my arm? Express arm again. <laughs> and so that's interesting. That's like Armageddon, right? Wow. We're going to express arm again. <laughs> and so that is what this extinction event is, is going to be a deep wound. And then we were going to reorganize life around the original plan, the original map. And interestingly, the original map can re-express itself differently when there's a complete death, when there's a complete extinction. There's a whole set of laws of physics that are extremely rigidly held by nature. And the first one is that you can neither create or destroy energy. You can only change its form. And so at this stage of my expression of body, it will keep repeating my body. It disappears and reappears about every millionth of a second. And so I'm re-expressing self constantly, a million times a second. When I choose to let go of that in physical form, that same energy center cannot be destroyed. And so you can imagine it could choose to express biology in some sort of human form again, or it can re-express itself perhaps as a star or whatever it is, you know, and so it's like, the energy can only change form and re-express a new pattern, but the pattern is informed by the original as well. So it's a very intriguing thing of we know who we are right now, but this is a temporary decision to express ourselves as human from that original energetic center that we would call a soul. So the, the whole thing is difficult to wrap our heads around, even more difficult to wrap our words around. And I think the only way to really experience what it means to be the miracle of life is to ultimately feel. And that's been my slow journey, I think, in all of this is I had to stop thinking so hard and I needed to start to feel. And that started to make me into the physician that I had hoped to be and that I forgot that I could be, perhaps. Because when I was just a kid working in midwifery in the Philippines, I had no book knowledge. I was a mechanic. I was worked on construction fields. I was just a blue-collar kid. 
and suddenly thrust into this environment, all I could do was feel the miracle of it. And so after six months of that, I came back to the States, quit my engineering plan and, and went into medicine because I felt something there that I had never felt before. It was miraculous to be around the birthing process. It was miraculous to see human bodies come out of nothing and then form themselves in, in the womb of a woman and then see that woman have the innate knowledge on how to get that baby out of herself and then see that baby, the innate knowledge of who it is, and then express a personality over time and express a, a, a whole arc of growth and maturation. And I mean, it's so out there. And I could just feel in my body as that kid watching this whole thing happen of, I want to be a part of that vibration that is a miracle. Because there was so much beauty. And when you held a little three pound, four pound baby in the Philippines, it changes everything. Like, how does this being exist? And then how does it express itself with such certainty? And I think that's the unsettling thing about seeing a baby born, especially if it's your own child being born. It's unsettling how sure that thing seems to be about who it is. Because you as a parent don't feel very sure about who you are anymore. You have deep insecurities. And to look into the eyes of a newborn child is to be seen by a human for the first time. Because that being doesn't have an ego yet. That being hasn't been trained out of its connection to source. That being is the only one that can see you. And for that, it can only see beauty. And for that, it will develop this bizarre, unconditional love for you that no matter how messed up you are as a person or a parent, that thing's going to still love you on some weird level because it saw you in that first moment of life. It looked up and it saw your face, and that's unconditional love. And we can get the same thing from nature. That's how I feel with animals. I think that's exactly right. Your dog, it sees your face, unconditional love. But miraculous is also that tree out there that's been staring at me this whole time. That thing can actually see me. That thing can see me. It doesn't see it with eyes. It sees me with an energy mm -hmm. field. It can sense my energy field for probably 45 minutes before I got here. Mm -hmm. It's feeling me approach. It's feeling me come into its space. It's feeling me be witness to it. And that giant tree with that massive canopy is feeling my love frequency because I'm seeing its beauty, which triggers in me this frequency that we call love. And when it gets hit with that vibration, it sends back to me an unconditional state of love of you. I'm seen by you, therefore you are loved. Mm. And so whether it be a newborn child, the tree, the lion, dog, the cat, nature is witnessing you all the time and sees your beauty and knows you are valuable. Mm. We are maturing as humanity to start to be able to see that in ourselves and in one another. I was in Portugal recently and there was this site, it's kind of like a Stonehenge of Portugal where these stones were just mysteriously put in this place and there are these giant, massive, beautiful stones. And I was walking around and I was like touching all the stones and I remember putting my hand on one stone and it was like, we're alive. And I was like, I know. And it was just so clear, the message of like, and just feeling it. And I was like, oh, you very much are alive. You know, the very experience of this just part of our existence and part of our being and being connected to nature and being in witness to nature. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. 
I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like this is a new type of audio that, um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future. Um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just, I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. In your experience, when you were helping deliver babies, what was the feeling you had towards the feminine, like the reverence and like the admiration, like how did you feel about women and the way that they were handling themselves and they handled the process of birth? It was the first time I'd seen that process with any frequency. I'd seen my younger, younger siblings get, come into the world, but to watching that repetitively in a given day or whatnot, it was an overwhelming sense of capacity, just awesome capacity within women. And in the Philippines, it's an interesting place to witness it because it's one of the few matriarchal societies. And so the women have never been seen as an inferior, you know, expression of gender. There's you know, women presence dating back forever in the Philippines. And so it's been a matriarchal society for a long time. And so you can feel it in the Philippines. You can feel this power in the women that there's so much less doubt, I think, in them. And so they actually are the entrepreneurs. They run most businesses. They do, you know, run a lot of the churches. They run the... It almost feels like the reverse model to the U.S. where it's just women are running kind of most of it. And the men become really, you know, joyful framework to hold space around this powerful feminine creative energy. And unfortunately, there's a lot of wounded masculine there as everywhere, but it's been that that masculine concept of I need to protect, I need to create space has been 
destroyed so many times by repeated colonialism for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think it's kind of broken the spirit of a lot of kind of the energy of being a man in that country is doubly difficult for that deep, deep trauma of colonialism and abuses that have happened through war to that country over the hundreds of years. And so you saw women that were really pretty isolated. A lot of them didn't have a man in the household, probably didn't know who they may have even gotten pregnant by. It was a lot of that very lonely state that at the time seemed unusual. Now in the United States, we pretty much match it. The vast majority of births now in most communities, no dad present. A lot of unsure who the dad was. And, and so the pattern has repeated itself in wealthy nations as, as we saw in these kind of broken damaged cultures that are from war and, and abuses, which suggests we're all in kind of a refugee status right now. Across the whole world, we're becoming refugees within our own society for the disconnect, for the damage done, for the war on soil, food, life itself. And for that, we're becoming war, war refugees. We're becoming victims of the battle of humanity across the board. And every household is now affected one degree of separation from any of these things we're talking about, whether it be infertility, cancer, disease, major depression, suicide. We're all one degree of separation. It's happened in our household or in immediate household adjacent to us. Yeah. Yes. And you've mentioned a few times creativity, which I want to talk about because creativity is something that I think sometimes people think is only accessible to them in the way of something that you kind of have to like create for others to consume. That creativity has to be music or art or it needs to be a specific way. And I don't know if people have all the permission to feel creative. And I think your expression and your discussion around creativity is so interesting to me because I'm like, what does that have to do? Or how do you see that playing a part in the work that you do in the world and the work that you do with nature and the work that you do with helping us to bridge the gap between believing that we're separate? Like, why is creativity important? I think in a unique way, it's, it is the God force within us. It's the evidence that we are of a creative force. And nature is an expression of that creative force. And we are nature. And when we lose our creativity, it means we are so disconnected from our nature that we're no longer participating in life. And so when we lose our creativity, it means we are quickly decaying. We are quickly losing our grasp of life. And unfortunately, we've developed a massive dependence on a drug system that shuts down creativity. And among those, I think that alcohol is probably the oldest in the book. You know, for back to the beginning of mankind, perhaps we've been using alcohol as something to dull pain and the unfortunate consequences is less creativity. Other drugs that have been popularized over the millennia and I think more recently is something like marijuana where you get this thing that completely wipes out drive and suddenly it's like, oh, everything is beautiful and you can like, get into <laughs> this thing, but your ability to like go and do something creative <laughs> at that moment seems quite low when you watch the effects of THC on biology. And Doesn't so, it like give you adrenal fatigue? Doesn't it affect your adrenal somehow? It's very common that you see anxiety disorders and yeah. stress patterns get disturbed by, you know, especially the really high concentrations of THC that happen in a lot of the strains that are being sold today. 
And the caveat here that I should say is that I've never never smoked pot and I've never been high, so I don't actually have the personal experience that it shuts down creativity. There may be some neurologic systems that feel like it decreases stress enough that they can be creative. There may be a little zone in there, but knowing THC in the laboratory and working with it a lot in my basic science stuff around cancer, you can see it affect a single cell this way. As the cell literally loses drive when THC hits it and just like sits down and doesn't do much. And so it's interesting that it has this kind of universal micro to macro effect of let's stop striving and let's just be really aware of what it feels like to be here right now <laughs> and let's be satisfied with that and so cancer for example is a very driven cell because it knows it's dying it's so damaged it can't repair itself and so it, it has to have this drive for repetition so we give a cancer cell cbd and thc you can actually increase the that kind of likelihood that it kind of shifts out of that drive state and its replication rate slows down and it, it then goes extinct because its rate of repair is so low that if it's not replicating, it dies quite quickly. And so in a weird way, the endocannabinoids from marijuana slow down the system and can be an aid in that process of allowing cancer to eliminate itself. And so it's been used quite effectively in a lot of palliative conditions of cancer. But I think that in the future, we will find that it probably may play a role in people who are going through the journey of finding health through their cancer journey. And it can be a part of that balancing, reducing the drive within us. And so that I'm not trying to demonize alcohol, and I'm actually not demonizing THC here, but it's a reflection of the fact that this creative force within us is shut down when we try to dull pain. And it's when we start to have pain that we you know, are probably in a neurologic state that we're, we can also feel the joy, feel the creativity. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to have the pain to have creativity. It's just that those two run through parallel neurologic networks that can't one can't be dulled without the other. And I think our food system has come to represent the most effective drug for this. It's, we have pain, we have anxiety, we have stress, and so we eat fat, salt, sugar combinations that trigger all of them these neurons in our head that initially give us this cocaine response of like, oh, I do have energy. Oh, good, because I was so exhausted I didn't care about life. Oh, good. I just had my double-fisted burger, fries, drink combination, and now I feel great. And then, oh, thank goodness, I feel like I'm in a coma. All the pain's gone, all the stress is gone, and I just want to like sit and watch the tube. And so then whether it's the marijuana killing the drive or the fast food killing the drive and the stress and anxiety and everything else, we're losing our connection to life, which is to say we are not no longer expressing true creativity. And that's that's just a, a state of being. It's not a crisis. We don't have to judge it necessarily. We can just acknowledge that the reason why every city in the Western world is starting to look identical to one another is because we're becoming disconnected from our creativity that allowed for us to have cultural unique expressions everybody's speaking English now worldwide. Is this a good thing? Probably not. It's probably programming people out of their original connection to the vibration of their location, their family, their sense of creativity, and the rest. And so as we use these Germanic languages as the universal language, that might even be symptomatic of a disconnect of creativity. When I was in school, everybody took a romantic language. 
we were taking Latin, we were taking Spanish, we were taking French, we were, like, it wasn't really even an option, like, nobody really thought about it. One percent of the school was taking German, <laughs> and it's like, the romantic languages were really where we were drawn to, and now it's hard to find those in schools. It's hard to find a connection to that, and a fraction of people are being exposed to a different way of expression, which is a fascinating microcosm, this loss of biodiversity, this loss of diverse experience. And so the monotony that we see around us in a shopping mall, and I was just in Singapore a couple of days ago, and I had been in Bali for like 12 days, like, oh, I want to find one of those things that I just saw in Bali 10 times and didn't have time to pick up. And you can't buy anything from Indonesia in the Singapore airport because it's Boss and Dior and yeah. it's all the same shopping that you would find oh, yeah. in any mall oh, anywhere yeah. in the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we You can't even find Bali in Indonesia anymore. And, and so if that's, it's just an expression of it. But it's also what's happening across sociopolitical systems. And like, why are all politicians so freaking angry at each other? Why are they all fear-mongering? Why are they all guilting you into something? Why are they all shaming you into something? They've lost their identity just like the shopping mall has lost the identity. They've lost their creativity. And so the only thing that they know to have a position is to be opposite the other person. And so now we have all these angry opposites and nobody even remembers what they used to be before. They were just an amalgamation of antis. Yes. I'm anti that, I'm anti that, and anti that, so therefore I am. <laughs> it's probably not the equation. And for that, we become anxious, depressed, disconnect, lose our drive, lose our creativity. All those are brush strokes if it's helpful of kind of why is mm -hmm. creativity or what is creativity important for. When we think about politicians and we were talking a little bit before about activism and a lot of our community has the desire to get involved has the desire to make a difference and make a change but I think the way in which activism is now positioned is needing a maturation which is what you said previously and I think we're needing a way in which we can be with the problems but not feel like our action is going against something but is it for? Like, do we go for things? How do we see activism sort of evolving in the next couple of years so that it actually can do the change that it needs to? Yeah. And I want to, before I answer that, I guess I want to have a disclaimer, which is I think that the journey of activism is, has been important for humanity. Mm -hmm. It's important to have whistleblowers. It's important to have uh, people pointing out the crisis that we're in. And so that's been a necessary chapter. And if we don't acknowledge the problem, then we will never solve for it. But finding the problem isn't actually the solution. And uh, I think that a way of maybe reframing our current understanding of activism is to realize that it's actually reactivism. <laughs> we are reacting to something that looks bad, something that looks damaging, that's something that seems unjust. Something is really getting at us, like feel violated by this thing. And so I'm going to react to that. And my God, I'm going to make it my purpose. And so now reaction has become your purpose. And so that's unfortunately a lot of the activism that we see out there. There's a lot of very effective programs out there too that are proactive. And those are the ones that are teaching us the, the path forward. And so as we move from reactive to proactive, we're also kind of 
matching that template of creativity that we just talked about. Instead of just not being aware of the problem and moving energetically near the problem so that you can have an emotion to that problem and then let everybody see your emotion and then tag that emotion as an altruistic badge of like, see, I, I believe in climate change or I believe in abortion or I believe in this, whatever your thing is, when you're emotionally attached to that thing and then that starts to become your identity. And I see this in the food world all the time. <laughs> vegans or paleos or keto people like it's nigh on to religion how important this is to them and how stupid they think everybody else must be for not doing what they're doing not realizing that anybody that goes and claims sovereignty over their food decisions has become healthy before they even put the food in their mouth the reason why the food is healing you is because you've taken a sovereign moment to say i deserve to take care of myself and so I'm going to eat this thing that I believe is really good for me. That's like the most powerful placebo you can possibly have. And the placebos are better than any chemotherapy ever had. Placebo has a 30% cure rate of just wow. about anything. You can get a drug to market in chemotherapy development if you have a 10 to 15% improvement in outcome. And so if you're half as good as a sugar pill, you can become a multi-billion dollar drug. And that's the game I was playing. I was trying to find something that was at least 15% effective at killing cancer. We do not do placebo-controlled trials in chemotherapy because the sugar pill would beat it every time. And so we haven't done placebo-controlled trials in cancer management since the 1960s. And so all the drugs on the market are drug-to-drug comparisons. And so my chemo is slightly better than this chemo or my chemo works in this cancer better than control. You know, like if you give, do nothing versus give this, it kills more cells. The tumor shrinks a little bit more. That's an effective drug. And so we've, we certainly don't do studies of like intensive prayer and meditation against chemotherapy. <laughs> like of course. that don't, yeah, that, no. that is never going to get funded. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, the reality is we have these fixed beliefs about the way in which nature works and the way in which we can control it. Forgetting that everything is a miracle. And that's the, that famous Einstein quote of, there's only two ways to see the world. Either everything's a miracle or miracles don't exist. And I think that's ultimately the, the slow brainwashing of medicine and engineering and you know, law. Any of our education systems are designed to brainwash you into believing that there's nothing miraculous. And if you will see one child born, you'll realize that there's miracles. <laughs> if you will see one loved one pass beyond the veil back and forth for a few hours, for a few days, seeing the beauty of the cosmos through non-human vibrational experience, you realize there's miracles. And every time you injure yourself and see your body self-repair, self-organize into its original math, there's another miracle. And so it's, it's that time now in human history where we're going to have to decide, are we going to go down the belief that we are analytical problem solvers that can outthink the nature that we were born out of? Can we technologically solve for an infertility that's come from our disconnect from nature? Or are we going to have to realize everything's a miracle? And we need to develop a relationship of reverence, compassion, grace, um, that wonderful concept of wonderment, 
And that's why I'm so grateful to you, Craig, if you're listening, to get me out in that kelp forest and just send me into this other universe and just dazzle my brain, dazzle my mind, and show me an octopus den. And are you kidding me? Like, this is all sitting here, and we're the only two people out in this water, and there's actually two and a half billion people on that continent right there, 30 meters away, and we're the only two people out here. What are we doing? Did you see any octopus? That trip we did not. Last one I did see one with him. And uh, did they come up? Did they? No, they're usually quite shy. He has this wonderful way about patiently coming into their space. Like he's such a gifted naturist, and he feels so much in the water. He's become extra human. Yeah, Uh, he's become so alert to fine sensory experiences that his ability to listen into all of his feelings underwater inform him of so much and so it's exciting to me that as humans we have the capacity to learn how to be like and i want to become the craig foster of love Mm. can i so sense human hearts that i could feel it from a mile away that oh there's a heart that can't see the beauty i just want to show that thing the beauty (laughs) like oh that octopus is hiding in the den can i what do i need to do to get that octopus curious they're super <laughs> curious so what little move do i need to make where it's like what is that what is that thing over there and it's like, like starts sneaking out, out and looks out and it's like that is a weird looking creature under the water <laughs> what what is that fins on that thing why is that gl- what's that glare on the that what like you can see the octopus so confused about the mm-hmm. human underwater mm-hmm. and then this octopus took his camera from him recently and he has the most unbelievable footage I think he's probably put it up on his oh YouTube God, channel, but this, this octopus steals his camera from him and takes this whole section of film and it's showing him the inside of itself and you're, you're like seeing this exquisite show across the camera lens of its suckers inside and how it moves over it. Like it's dazzling. And then it takes the camera and shows Craig himself and films Craig underwater and the narrative that Craig has put over this of what they just, when they watched this video, what happened to them when they realized this octopus was observing them and seemingly knowing how to show them what it looks like from his perspective, what a human looks like underwater. Wow. And it's, it's other, the human looks so weird. It's suddenly like, oh, wow, that thing is out of place. Wow. That doesn't fit within this matrix. It doesn't, that's an alien. That when you go underwater <laughs> and you you see octopus, you just go underwater, you're like, this is another planet. This is truly another planet. You're like, this is enough for me. I mean, that's what the word extraterrestrial means, yes. right? It's beyond or larger than Earth. Yes. And so we are Earthlings, meaning we are tied to, to the soil. And when you go into that aquatic space, you're, you are in that extraterrestrial oh, yeah. space. With a different intelligence. And can we just have a moment of pause for a blue whale? Like, I, hello. Their eyes. Yeah, they're, just look in an eye of a blue whale and you're just like... I, we went whale watching in Hawaii and there was baby whales. There was a giant whale underneath our boat. And she let the baby come up. The baby was so curious. And it was just coming up and looking at us and moving around. And you're like, how... 
is this first of all you're like how is she still so kind to us to allow her baby to have the curiosity to come play you know what i mean she knows the gravity of what humans do to her but i'm so grateful to animals is like my way of the deepest connection to source and to love and to purity and to truth it's just something that i want to incorporate with the rest of my life and the way that i work with people is somehow incorporating animals and the healing power of animals within my life when you say your mission is love and helping people to see and feel and true to experience love i remember when we first talked years ago we talked about a circumstance where you connected with jesus and you were asking about love and there was kind of the transmission that it's actually beauty that's part of our experience here on earth so why wouldn't your goal for people to see beauty like what is your relationship between love and beauty in the way of your mission beauty is the fabric of everything and our experience of seeing beauty triggers within us a reaction of a vibration that we call love and so that was why i was kind of feeling that thing of like if oh there's a heart that's not knowing love or not vibrating the frequency of love it means it can't see the beauty and so what do i need to show that that heart of myself that it would suddenly vibrate in beauty is it my humor is it my right. white hairy butt like what, what's gonna <laughs> yes. what's gonna make that person yeah. just laugh and just be like oh my gosh like we're human and we're here and it's amazing and we're mm -hmm. like we're, we're crazy we're just in it and yep. it's wonderful and what's gonna light that heart back up it's something about seeing the beauty that's gonna do that and so fortunately we are masters of seeing beauty and i think that a remarkable thing to reflect on is what has been one of the most life-changing things in beauty for me has been watching African sunsets. There's, It was the first time that I felt home on Earth. I've always kind of walked around with this little negative narrative running in me of like, I don't think I'm from here. I don't yeah, feel home here. I don't blah, blah, blah. And then I saw that African sunset. I was like, oh, this is, I am Earth. Earth is me. I have seen that sunset so many times and I know that vibration and I feel home here and the answer is that is in all of us because for 300,000 years we've been in Africa we all came out of Africa and it's a new finding that is 300,000 years I'm sure I've said 200,000 years on this podcast before because up until just the last few months we thought that was kind of the human history of it but anthropologists have just uncovered 300,000 year old human societies in North Africa now and we seem to leave Africa maybe around 100,000 years ago. So for 200,000 years, we all watched African sunsets in our genetics. So the epigenetic memory and then the germline genetics that became you remembers the vibration of that sunset in a deep, deep way. And so that experience of watching those African sunsets grounded me on this planet in a way that nothing else had before. Mm -hmm. And... Then I looked around at the beauty of the African bush, monkeys and birds and lions and wildebeest and lope of every variety and the kudu and what is going on? It's so much beauty. And then you suddenly realize, why are we the only species watching the sunset? None of the other species are watching it. The monkeys are up the tree is back to it. Birds flying around as if nothing's happening. They're not watching the sunset because they have a different experience with beauty than we do. They really are the beauty. They're vibrating with the sun. They're vibrating with the dimming of the earth. They're vibrating with the plants. 
that singularity, that oneness that I think the planet is experiencing is what you see when you look in a whale's eye. Why is that like looking into the cosmos itself? It's because there is no dissonance in that animal. It is completely coherently whale, just like that oak, the massive tree over there is always going to wake up oak tree. And so these trees and these whales have 100% coherence with the soul of it. What is that energy field expressing right now? It's every day expressing that. And there's no dissonance. There's no disconnect. There's no sense of insecurity. There's no sense of doubt. There's only surety of I am whale. And for that, we need to be very cautious with this empathy piece when we start to project things on nature. We witness nature and we're like, oh, that dog, that poor dog, it must be this or that. Or, And so we, we see an animal's condition or something else and we immediately project human emotions on it. The likelihood of that animal's having anything remotely like the vibration that you experience is zero. It's not having a human emotion. I guarantee you it. <laughs> and so it might be able to experience pain, but the concept of suffering I think is uniquely human because we create suffering only through our sense of loneliness and that animal can never feel it knows it's the sunset it knows the cloud it knows the tree it knows the whole thing and so not only do we need to kind of lose the empathy we need to lose this tendency for human projection on the world around us and we need to start to be willing to be seen as human and therefore unique and then equipped with that unique understanding of where we sit within this pantheon of life, we start to respect ourselves for the ability to uniquely stare into that sunset and see nature in a unique way and say, thank you. That's spectacular. And it's possible that that's what nature has been waiting for. Ancient scriptures seem to suggest that called the bride of God, you know, and we're referred to as the partner to this thing that we call nature. And what does ultimately a bride want? They want to be seen. That person wants to be seen. And so the marriage and the whole construct of relationship before marriage and everything that we've had around that, the social rituals around marriage, all these things were so that the bride could be seen. And so when we're told that we are the bride, it's a reminder that, yes, we can see the beauty of the groom, but ultimately it's about seeing the bride. And so in a weird way... I think nature wants to see us so badly. So why is the whale keep letting you see her and her pup and everything? Else? Because she wants to see you. Because there's something remarkable about you because you vibrate differently. And the octopus can see it and it'll turn the camera around and be like, you are very unique. You don't quite fit in here. What's going on with you? Oh, you are sitting there staring at me and no other creatures are down here staring at the octopus in awe. You are staring at me, and I'm going to stare back at you because I can see you, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to see me. And in that, Craig Foster can go into an ecstatic state because to be seen by another is an orgasmic ecstatic state of being. And so nature can do that. A whale will take the whole boat to an ecstatic state of wonderment and just like tingling neurologic overwhelm with one blink because it can see you and everybody in the boat. And it's a lovely thing to be seen. It's, we might actually get to this point very soon where we can actually see each other in the mm -hmm. same, same way that we would be seen or see a whale. And for that, we will see so much deep beauty. 
And for that beauty, we will vibrate in such a resonance of love that we can shift human behavior, which is to ultimately say genetics and biology and really create a new humanity through our capacity to see another. For the creation of the new humanity, when we think about that, how do we stay present with the experience now and not sort of jump there and be like, okay, we're new humanity. Like, how do we do that without not being present to the situation that we're in or like honoring where we're at? Yeah. We talked earlier about the Course of Miracles and that last line in that Tome of Wisdom says that the last thing I will do in this human body is let go of judgment. And so we have such a tendency to call light good and dark bad. And so we have this whole Star Wars matrix of uh, good and evil everywhere. And we put this on ourselves. We shine that prism on everything and immediately make these snap judgments inside our brains and subconsciously, consciously around everything. The color of the car that just drove by, like you subconsciously judged that for absolutely no good reason. Mm -hmm. Like, who the heck cares what color the car was? Like, you really want to spend a neurologic thought on that? Okay, let's organize that whole experience of you saw the color and then you had a gut reaction and your endocrine system turned on and now you're going to spend time processing that and projecting a human emotion onto those feelings and saying that that car somehow pissed you off when in fact you were already pissed and the car justified the fact that you were pissed. You know? And so... We have so much projection and so much subconscious, conscious judgment going on that we can't see the beauty of anything. And we have fear of everything that we might become evil. Mm -hmm. If if you only believe that you can be the victim or the perpetrator, and those are your two options in life, then you're going to diminish your power as quick as possible if you're a kind person so that you're not the perpetrator. And you'll happily be the victim so that you're not the perpetrator. And so we go into these paradigms of belief due to our judgment over one versus the other. And we definitely don't want to be evil. We definitely don't want to be bad, so we will be. And then we develop a narrative that has some amalgamation of fear, guilt, that then turns into bitterness, anger, deceit, revenge, you know, all these things that come out of that festering wound and then we realize what we were saying actually victim and perpetrator is just two sides of the same coin of that broken masculine or that broken belief that we are separate from nature what if we're supposed to be creators and so you move from victim perpetrator to creator and suddenly you you just left the coin on the table and you went and became the new thing and so when we start talking about becoming the new human can we lose judgment long enough to lose the genes of fear, guilt, and shame. And for that, we will express a new genome. And for that, we will express a different biology that might be more resilient, more adaptive, more intelligent, blah, 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 blah. So maybe we become an octopus. Like, yeah, I mean, that'd be dope. <laughs> that'd be pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I, think I would choose that next. Uh, it would be pretty amazing. I would be right? all the color uh, changing. Color changes and camouflage and be able to collapse and go through these pinholes. How many brains? Do they have more than one or more than one heart? They have a distributed neurologic system. They don't have that central nervous system that we have. They have kind of this distributed neurologic system. You know the octopus that chooses that win- Super Bowl winner? That one? So there's, so there's <laughs> an octopus that they have that basically they have them in a tank and they'll put two 
football helmets on each end of the no. tank. And he'll go to the helmet of who's going to win the oh, Super Bowl. Oh, he's and the he's oracle. Like, he's like 85% accurate. The football oracle. Isn't that crazy? Wow, that's super cool. I'll send you a video. So like basically every Super Bowl, they'll have the octopus like choose who's going to win. And he's like super accurate. They have the intelligence of a, like an eight-year-old. That's why I can't do calamari. Yeah. Because I'm like, guys, we've these are they're too intelligent for that. No judgment, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think the calamari is a squid, maybe, but oh, okay. pretty darn close. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Okay. Same thing. I mean, octopuses eat in restaurants all the time. Yeah. And so go to any French restaurant, and they're probably serving yeah, I know. skate and squid. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I think, you know, it is interesting that we are so unawares of the intelligence of the, the creatures that we consume. Um, yes. And we're even less aware of the abuses to which that we put them through to oh, be yes. on our plate. Oh, yeah. So that unconsciousness. Well, think of, about if you know both. If you know how intelligent, then you know the abuse. That's the worst combination. Yeah. And that's why you can never eat bacon again. Yeah. If there's an intelligent mammal out there, it's a pig. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And they are, they exhibit so many of human traits, yeah. you know. And in fact, they are the same genome, which is very interesting. For a long time, we've read, the textbooks will tell you that like 99.7% identical as a human and a pig but recently a team demonstrated that they're actually basically 100 percent identical all you have to do is chop the genome into 178 puzzle pieces and rearrange that puzzle slightly and now it spells pig and wow. so we are a simply a non-linear expression of pig as humans wow and so they have all the genetic code that we have which is to say they probably have all the vibrational capacity to see a universe with all of the same skill sets and intelligence that we have, and they happen to express it with the exuberance of how good it feels to squish their toes in mud. I know. <laughs> it's like... Which isn't that bad. That's actually pretty genius because <laughs> that feels really good. I know. And I haven't done that since I was three because uh, my mom started yelling at me about jumping in puddles probably or something like that. Yeah, I was like, like, why do we do that to yeah. kids? Why do we tell them not to jump in puddles? Why do we tell them messy. to put their shoes on? Mm -hmm. Why do we tell them not to get in the mud? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. like, and so they they stop being their pigginess, mm -hmm. and they they become these deprogrammed beings. That's a tragic thing to lose our pigginess, maybe. But I, I think that there's an opportunity for at this point in the discussion, people's brains have exploded seventeen times because they don't even understand where we're going, probably. But if we step back to some of the original premises of Fertility. What does it mean to be fertile? It means to be able to give life. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be able to give life? It means you are a creative force. So what is creativity? Creativity is being touched with your God force, your God capacity to form a thought, to form a relationship, to form new pattern of organization and take that canvas and you paint something that's never been seen before because it's a reorganization of the patterns that exist in nature. And you're re-expressing nature on that canvas through your own experience. Of course, the miracle says it adds to what is already perfect. Adds to what is already perfect. Which is so wild to think about. I just think it's crazy it doesn't exist. And then you bring it through your mind and create. We've gone everywhere, which has been mm -hmm. so much fun. And there's something I, I've been thinking about with you because just as my last question, you've done so much work. You've reached so many communities. You've connected with so many people. People know you and people feel like they know you or people have the perception of knowing you. But what's one thing that you wish people knew about you? Like, what's one thing that you're like, I wish 
you know, this was known about me or my expression or who I am. Yeah, I think it's something I've talked about probably pretty often and gets missed, which is I'm a work in progress. I'm I'm as broken as the next, and I'm on a journey of healing as the next. And I've never at any point felt intelligent. I always feel increasingly in a state of wonderment of how much I don't know and how miraculous it is that anything happens. It's just like this. And so I'm moving, I hope, towards a more and more childlike state of awe. And in that awe, I see no boundaries. Like Everything's possible. We can change everything. We can transform everything. We can transmute every toxin ever developed, whether it be relationships or herbicides or pesticides or chemical warfare or whatever it is. We can transmute all of that because we are bigger than life. We are these huge energy fields that carry the potency of 10,000 suns. Like, when did we believe we couldn't create our own universe? You know? And so it's time for us to really drop into this childlike aspect of ourselves and let go of any sense of intellect or analytic capacity and find something much deeper than intellect and intelligence as we might measure it in a school, in our, in our education system, and be willing to learn instead. The definition of learn or learning versus education is nearly polar opposite. And so it's worth looking those two words up and realize like, oh, I spent 30 years doing the education thing. And for that, I forgot to learn. And learning is such a beautiful journey. It's driven by curiosity and satiated by new discovery. And that new discovery is a way of saying remembering. <laughs> it's already been known. It's already been there forever. Scientists are kind of funny that way where we'll say we just discovered a new protein or something like that. Like, oh, I mean, actually what I mean is this protein has been there for billions of years and I just saw it and came to understand it for a moment and therefore I have discovered it. You know, and that's a sad paradigm because we've done that at the cellular level and, and atomic level in science, but we've done it to whole continents. And we come over and we're like, oh, we've oh, yeah. discovered a new land. This is... And then because I discovered it, I am God and I have a God force capacity and I am, you know, manifest destiny and I have this this whole concept of, you know, find it, therefore it's mine. And we get this colonial mindset down at the molecular level all the way up to the macro level of, of society and we express all of this damage for that tendency towards ownership. And if you stop owning your own learning and start letting it flow through you, you can learn so much more. And I'm really grateful for everything I've forgotten about medicine. Mm. The last time I took my, yeah, every 10 years, you're supposed to research all of your specialties. And for me, that's a lot of tests because those internal medicine, then endocrinology, hospice, palliative care. And so every three years, you're basically taking this massive test that takes months to study for and everything else. I got to a point in my career where I was so busy that there was no way I was taking months off to go study for this exam. And I was so divorced from the original information because the world I was seeing was simply didn't even understand my, my, the belief systems that allowed me to take those tests successfully 25 years ago. And so my last test that I took was my endocrine test. And when I failed that, I was just burst out laughing because I missed it by like two points. Like it was like so close to like 
being right. And I was like, oh, shoot, I still have like 50% of this to unlearn because <laughs> I almost passed. Yeah. <laughs> and that would have been a bit of a disaster because it means I would still have my old worldview. And so it's been a joy to like mm-hmm. do the reverse thing where I'm starting to celebrate my forgetting and start celebrating the belief systems that have died rather than the belief systems I cling to celebrate that which has passed. I celebrate the canopies that I have dropped from my tree over and over again so that I can have a new spring. And that's a different attitude on life and it's leading me to more of a childlike aspect. And so I guess in answer to your question, I hope that people know that life is a journey. Anything that we would see as beautiful is beautiful for its change, for the transformation, for the frictions that cause that transformation. And I've known so much heartbreak in my life, and yet I've also had such an easy life. It's this dualism that we all have to walk around with. Like, it could be so much worse, and yet I've been through so much. And for that, it's a beautiful journey, no matter who you are, where you are, all of these things. And so I hope that people don't keep walking away from these podcasts being like, Zach is so smart, or Zach knows things. If you see something of beauty in anything I've ever said, then it just means I'm starting to be able to show you my nature. And for seeing my nature, you see something beautiful, and then you attribute a bunch of your emotions to that, which are inaccurate. And so know that whatever you think I am is probably an amalgamation of you and your experience and not actually me. And I think that's why a lot of people in the public eye suffer, is because everybody is projecting their own image of them, and they feel more lonely and more unseen with every passing year, with every million new followers or million new people staring at them. The performers among us tend to die very young um, because the stress that's there of people telling you or believing you're something you are not because they're having their own experience and then projecting that on you and then making that your identity, that's a very intense energy to be in every day. And so I have to dip out of that, and I'm really grateful for long plane rides today because it's that bubble that I can get into where it's like nobody's reacting to me. Nobody's projecting on me, and I get to just be in my vibration for that period of time. And I love that I'm 30,000, 50,000 feet above Earth because humans for 300,000 years have been involved in the six feet above the soil. You know, it's like we've had such a, a tiny, tiny, tiny little experience of a cosmos that goes on forever. And we then develop all these belief systems and all these narratives and all these stories and we cling to them. And then you go in an airplane and you're like, oh my gosh, those tiny, tiny little cars look like little ants and everything takes on a new thing. And you can suddenly realize, wow, my stressors of yesterday don't make any sense in the context that I'm landing in this new city that I've never seen before. And oh my God, there's seven million people that live in this city that's that's kind of amazing i wonder what they're all up to look what they've built look at this ingenuity look at the creativity that's expressed in that skyline and that art down there and the park there and this is actually radically beautiful from up here and you can't see the plastic yet you can't see the damage done and you can see the beauty from a distance and i think that that's kind of like what it feels like to be a parent like you always think your kid is beautiful even when they're like stumbling all over the place and can't even walk yet and they talk every word is wrong they can't say their s's they can't say their d's and yet you just think it's the cutest most beautiful thing ever because you don't actually see the 
quote unquote flaws. You only see the beauty of the, the 30,000 foot view of here's a soul that has entered. And so airplanes are kind of a blessing and we've found outer space to kind of be the same thing as every astronaut that goes out there comes back with a radically different worldview. And uh, it's probably what they see out there in the cosmos as much as what they see down here. But suffice it to say, they are permanently changed for the change in perspective. And so I hope that you have a day today that changes your perspective. And when you're listening to this, I hope that it reminds you to be curious about what you could see differently in the world around you by changing the orientation that you hold to that stuff. So what do you need to do? You need to maybe drive differently to work tomorrow. There's actually you know, a hundred different paths you could take to work. Do you need to change the side of the sink that your toothpaste is on? That would be different. And I have my cancer patients do this. I literally change everything. Switch sinks, switch bathrooms, hang your towel differently, take cold shower instead of hot shower, change absolutely everything in the day, which seems like useless, mundane things, and yet your genetics have to express a different body for all of that change. So take the different route. Put the windows down in the car instead of turning on the air conditioner. Breathe the air as you go by the park. Go and stop and get out of the park. Go walk for three minutes and then get back in the car and do your day. And everything that happens in the day will be different for the three minutes in the park when you actually allowed that tree to see you. So this is how we're going to create the new humanity is change our routine. Change our rigid rut-like behavior and with that maybe you'll get out of the ruts of the beliefs and the thoughts that are recurring in your mind that diminish you in fear of being a perpetrator you make yourself a victim every day and so turn on your energy and become the creator leave the victim perpetrator coin behind stop letting that flip back and forth and stop putting it into the slot machine altogether stop gambling on your victim perpetrator hopes and Simply go create something other than the casino of human behavior and re-engage with a beautiful nature that can see you. Love that ending. <laughs> Love you so much. Thank you so much for being here and for, yeah, just always bringing your heart to our community. That's my favorite thing about you is that people love you for your heart. You are so smart, but people love you because of your heart and they can feel it. It's like the transmission is seen and felt and I think that's it's just my example in the world of someone being admired for their frequency and for their energy and for their heart even though you have so many of the other things but it's like just really profound so thank you so much for being here thank you for what you do yeah. uh, every time I've been here I can feel your care and love for the community that mm. listens to your podcast as you guys have created together and I just, you know, what I do is actually quite simple as I show up here and participate in the conversation. But what you have done over time is you've been the energy center that has actually attracted people to one location. And that's a much different and probably bigger calling than the one that I do. I get to be the guest. I have the gift of being a guest into your world. But you created this world. And the people that are listening right now co-created that world with you. So you can invite me in for a moment and hopefully be blessed by that, but don't diminish what mm -hmm. you guys have created together, which is a sense of community and shared mm -hmm. vision, shared sense of values that bring you guys together again and again and again, week on, week on. 
people join you regardless of the guest because it's you, not me, that they're attracted to. So it's important that we dig a little deeper than the person who's on stage and start to step back and let the octopus put the camera the other direction and be like, oh my gosh, we are so beautiful, those of us that are sitting here watching the sunset of Zach Bush as he ages into his next iteration of life after he dies. You know, mm-hmm. you, I'm old enough now that you are watching my sunset in real time, mm-hmm. and so I am diminishing my biologic light with every passing year, and for that you're watching the ombre of the oranges and reds and everything else that might give you the experience of beauty right now in watching me set. And I'm excited to set as well in the sense that when I go beneath the horizon, when I go beneath that soil, you're going to find out that there's 2.5 trillion galaxies above you. And Mm -hmm. you're going to find out that each of those has 2 billion stars in it. And you're going to just be blown away by the 14 quadrillion suns burning above you because I have set. And that's what gets me excited about the form of a podcast is they all come to an end Mm -hmm. and then somebody has to go home and look in the mirror and realize oh there's the beauty that i I thought that was zach when i was listening it's just me just me i'm the beauty and did you hear that zach was just seeing me for a moment Mm -hmm. and he was saying words that distracted me long enough so that i could be seen but you all are beautiful and you are actually the center your world and not me and i'm honored to be witness to each of you in this kind of virtual state of being where they're the vortex that forms in the midst of two people. And scripture has said, where two or more are gathered, I am. Mm-hmm. I think that's talking about everything in the equation. The I am of the God force of nature and its incredible, exquisite intelligence of design and the I am of you, the I am of me. And so the I am is a collective state, unique for each of our perspectives back to the I am and our unique ways in which we express I am through us. And that creates a vortex of energy. When you sit in a podcast and do that again and again and again in the space, there's something about that that accelerates Mm -hmm. the reconnection to source. Mm -hmm. And so the open heart that you have and the tenderness and the, the speed at which you can tear up in a conversation is symptomatic of that which you have opened here. So I honor the vortex you've opened here through human communication and fellowship. And I honor you for the intellect that allows you to engage in these conversations with such a vast variety of peoples. And uh, for all that biodiversity, your audience is fortunate. Oh, amen. Thanks for being in my vortex. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, guys. Good stuff. Good stuff. We'll see you later. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Zach Bush for joining us on the show. You can find more information about Zach Bush at ZachBushMD.com or on Instagram at ZachBushMD. It's Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H-M-D. Again, that was Almost 30 Podcast. My name is Krista Williams. You can connect with me more at It's Krista on Instagram. It's I-T-S-K-R-I-S-T-A. It's Krista.com. I work one-to-one with people to support them in finding their authentic voice. I love to support empaths and finding their purpose. I have an amazing program called The Life Edit that has changed my life by bringing conscious awareness to all things. And I am one half of Almost 30 Podcasts, which I do with my very best friend, Lindsay Simsick, who again is on maternity leave. 
We love and support her in her motherhood journey, and I'm so excited for baby to be Earthside now in this moment. We are grateful for our sponsors that make this show possible. You can go to almost30.com slash partners to find partner information and discount codes from brands that we truly love and trust that we've vetted already in the show, such as Ion, which is Zach Bush's brand. We have a second podcast called Morning Microdose. There are no ads in this podcast. It is five to 10 minutes. It is the best of the best from the show. It is your daily dose of inspiration that just brings a nugget of insight information from our show to you every single day. So you can subscribe to Morning Microdose wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more information about Lindsay and I. You can learn how to start a podcast. You can get the Life Edit or any of our other courses and programs or even membership at almost30.com. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at almost30podcast and on YouTube. We put all of our video up on YouTube. We recently started our YouTube, so would love to see you over there. Thank you for being a part of our community and our lives. I am so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that you support me in doing what I came here to do. I'm hopeful this episode was helpful, inspiring, and all the things. I will see you on the next episode of Almost 30.